Welcome to Brandon Avat. Um, we're delighted to be rejoined by Brian Leiter. And Brian is one of the rare philosophers who has two excellencies in his discipline. So our first episode with him is on the philosophy of law. Uh, and Brian is very well regarded in this respect. And today we're going to be talking about Nietzsche. Uh, and Brian has written quite substantially on Nietzsche morality. Uh, so would you like to start with the thought experiment? Great. It's nice to be back. And I'm happy to start with a thought experiment uh, from the underdeveloped field of Nietzschean applied ethics. Um, so many of your listeners, uh, and of course, both of you will be familiar with the, the trolley problem thought experiment, which is a staple of applied ethics and bioethics. Um, so in the trolley problem, um, we're asked to imagine a runaway trolley hurtling down the tracks. Um, and there is a switch on the tracks that you have the option of throwing. If you uh, don't throw the switch, the trolley will hurtle into five people who are on the track in front of it. If you throw the switch, the trolley will change course, will hit only one person, but you'll save five. Um, that's the part of the trolley problem that I'm going to make use of. There's the further question, uh, which is that many people have the broadly utilitarian or consequentialist intuition that it's okay to flip the switch in order to save five, even though you sacrifice one. Um, but in the variation of the trolley problem, people are asked to imagine pushing the so-called fat man off a bridge, right, to block the trolley from hitting the five people instead of throwing a switch. And many people have a kind of intuition that, gee, they'd feel funny about pushing the man off the, the bridge, even though once again, you would save five and sacrifice one. That part of the trolley problem is gonna matter less for my purposes. So here now I ask you to imagine the new chain trolley problem. And the point of this example is that it uh, brings out very clearly the very different way Nietzsche thinks about these things. Um, so the trolley is hurtling down the track. Um, if you don't flip the switch, it will uh, run over five people. But if you do flip the switch, it'll only kill one. And Nietzsche does not have the moral intuition that you should flip the switch, given that information. The question for Nietzsche, and he almost says this verbatim in one of his books, he says, the, the real question is, um, who's the five and who's the one? Who are they? Right? Because Nietzsche does not accept the view that all human beings, simply in virtue of human beings, are entitled to a kind of equal moral consideration. Right? Um, and therefore, it's not on his view obvious that saving five and sacrificing one is the right thing to do. What if the one is Beethoven? Um, to use one of Nietzsche's favorite examples of a, of a world historic genius, right? The one is Beethoven and the five are a bunch of philosophy professors, terminals, as Nietzsche would say, right? Easy case, let the five philosophy professors get crushed by the trolley, right? Um, and Nietzsche thinks this because Nietzsche is not, unlike just about all of modern moral political thought, what I call a moral egalitarian, right? Someone who thinks that all people are entitled to equal moral concern in virtue of being people. And we can interpret that in different ways. What equal moral concern involves is probably something we'll, we'll talk about. 
Um, but he rejects moral egalitarianism. And, uh, and so his approach to the trolley problem is very, very different than that that we're familiar with in English speaking philosophy. So Brian, I'm curious what it is um, about a person that Nietzsche thinks makes them more morally valuable than someone else. Nietzsche does indeed have a conception of human beings uh, as being divided into higher and lower types. Um, he thinks the vast majority of people are lower types. Uh, he often uses the phrase herd animals. This is not meant to be complimentary. Needless to say, it is meant to compare the typical person to the typical cow, um, you know, just goes along with the herd, nothing special about it. On the other hand, Nietzsche thinks there are certain truly exceptional people. Uh, the example I gave, I mentioned Beethoven, that is certainly one of those he thinks uh, is a really exceptional person. Uh, another one of his favorite examples is uh, Goethe, you know, who was a genuine Renaissance man, uh, a poet, a writer, an essayist, a scientist, a naturalist, you know, he did everything. Um, I think Nietzsche views himself as an example of such a person. Uh, his other favorite example, maybe a little more surprising, I think, to a contemporary uh, was Napoleon. Um, but Napoleon was a standard 19th century example of a genius. Napoleon presented himself that way. He cultivated that kind of image. Um, and so you might ask, what do all these people have in common? This is really the way we get to an answer, Jason, to your, your question. Here's a very simple way to put it. I mean, they are all, as it were, creative geniuses who put their imprint on the world and change the way the world values things, right? Whether in the realm of music or in the realm of literary creation or in the case of Napoleon in the literal structure of Europe, right? Um, you know, one of the important things about Napoleon in the history of Europe, you know, even though his reign did not last that long, but he imposed a structure of government on France that remains to this day. Right? And it remains in various forms in other parts of Europe, right? And the Napoleonic Code had an enormous influence even long after, after Napoleon. Um, so these are kind of creative geniuses that transform the world. Um, and they transform it in a way that, uh, you know, maybe to put it a little too simply, uh, but I do think this is part of what Nietzsche is getting at. It makes, it makes the world and life worth living in. <laughs> it is enticing. Um, uh, it makes the world uh, aesthetically interesting. Nietzsche has, a, has, a, has an unusual view about aesthetic experience. It's a very anti-Kantian view, right? Kant emphasizes disinterested contemplation, right? When the, in the experience of beauty. For Nietzsche, aesthetic experience um, is fundamentally involves the arousal of pleasure, right? It, in fact, for him, it is clearly a form of sublimated sexual um, arousal. And Freud is very influenced by this idea. So if the world is aesthetically appealing, it is arousing, it is attractive, right? Um, and this is related to a more general worry Nietzsche has about resisting a certain kind of pessimism, giving up on life altogether. All Thaddeus Metz gives an account of the meaning of life. And what he says is that what constitutes meaning is a combination of the good, the beautiful, and the true. And it, it sounds like this is fairly similar. 
I wonder whether there's not some sort of translation here to um, if you take Thad's view um, and you say, well, someone uh, is worth saving on the trolley tracks insofar as they have a meaningful life. Nietzsche assigns a very high uh, premium to the beautiful, we might say. Um, he doesn't assign any to the true. In fact, it's one of his standing themes that falsehood is a necessary condition of life. Falsehood and illusion are indispensable. So for example, Nietzsche thinks that none of us actually have free will, that our lives are largely fated in ways we don't fully appreciate. Yet the illusion of having a choice is absolutely essential for life. Um, and we, we can multiply examples. So the, in, the, in the great dispute in antiquity between you know, Plato and Homer, and Nietzsche even puts it this way, right? Plato, of course, banishes poetry from, uh, from the Republic, from the ideal city, because it's not a reliable guide to the truth. And Nietzsche reverses that. He says it's precisely the great virtue of art, right, that it isn't concerned with the truth and that it, it makes existence aesthetically appealing in part through the use of, of illusions. You know? So we'd have to drop the true in that formulation. And we might have to drop the good because I suspect uh, Professor Metz being a nice guy probably needs the morally good and Nietzsche certainly doesn't. So you might say for Nietzsche, it's the excellent and the beautiful <laughs> and we can forget about the true. But now bring it back around to what, what your real point was. Isn't that in effect operating as a kind of criterion of value by which we choose in the trolley situation, right? And the answer is yes, in a sense, but what I want to emphasize is it still leaves Nietzsche very far from being a moral egalitarian because it is characteristic of all moral egalitarians, whether they come out of the Kantian or deontological tradition or they come out of the consequentialist utilitarian tradition, right? That they all think that all human beings, at least, have equal moral standing. And on this view, you don't get that. Only the good, the beautiful have any moral, loosely speaking, in the loose sense, have any moral standing, right? Um, so it's not, as I, uh, as I say in the, uh, the, the paper that I know you have looked at, um, it's, it's not like the interests of Beethoven, right, outweigh the interests of the five herd animals on the other track. It's that their interests, in a sense, don't even count. <laughs> they don't even get into the way, right, um, because they don't matter. They don't matter from the from the moral or ethical ethical point of view. So there's something intuitively appealing about the accounts and also deeply disturbing. So on the one hand, I think it would just be wrong-headed to pretend that all people are the same as each other. I mean, clearly we have, you know, there are certain people who are just excellent in a field. You know, if you think about the best athletes, they are just so much better than everyone else, or the super scientists or the great artists. Um, you know, there really are these, this tiny number of people at the end of the bell curve, who are just excellent. And we do treat them as being better in a lot of ways. So when one of those people dies, when someone like David Bowie dies, you have a, a big sense of mourning. And a lot of people say this is a tragedy that has happened in, in a way that is different to um, you know, some unknown uh, proletariat who, you know, passes away in a mine or, you know, some worker, you know, dies in construction. You don't have that universal sense of mourning. If you ask, people will say something like, that's a tragedy and uh, we're all equal before the eyes of God. And of course, we're all morally equal. 
But is there some sense in which we pretend that we're morally equal? Well, actually, when it counts, we don't behave that way. But here's the bit that I say is disturbing, is that we have examples of states treating people like herd animals and exterminating them. Um, so, you know, the Nazis saying these people, these Jews, these gypsies, they are untermenschen and they have no moral standing whatsoever. And so nothing bad has occurred when we corral them into camps and gas them to death. Um, or if you're, you know, in a communist society, you can say, well, these people are traitors of the state. These bourgeoisie, you know, are no longer people. They're intermention, uh, and they can be exterminated and they can be worked to death in a gulag. And, you know, the true um, Ubermensch can be celebrated, however you define that in your particular rules of your society. And so because we see those horrors, um, especially in a way that's either driven by class or race, we say we can't do that. We have to pretend that we're all morally equal and we have to act as if everyone has these equal rights, even if it's not really grounded in reality. You wouldn't want to design a political program or a state around um, Nietzsche's views on this score. This may be yet another case where the illusion of moral equality is a very important and valuable illusion. Right? Um, and... Uh, and as you say, right, when you, uh, when you look at examples of political ideologies um, that seem to group people, put people into different groups in terms of their moral worth, um, it ends up being quite, quite disastrous. Um, you, of course, mentioned the, the Nazi case, which is apt here. And so I do want to say something about... Um, about the, the topic of Nietzsche and the Nazis, because um, there, is, um, there is an actual kind of historical um, connection. So Nietzsche has, suffers a final breakdown, probably due to syphilis, uh, which was a rampant disease in the 19th century in January of 1889. He then lives as kind of an invalid in a you know, gradual, eventually state of dementia until 1900. Um, in the 1890s, he starts to become very, very famous, very, very famous. People start reading his books. A man named Georg Brandes uh, in Denmark uh, was a well-known public intellectual at the time. He's lecturing on him. Um, uh, his estate is eventually taken over by his sister, who really was a proto-Nazi. Um, uh, she had married a man named Bernhard Foster, who was a literally a proto-Nazi. Um, who was such a maniac that he decided the only way to have a pure Aryan uh, society uh, was to set up a new one. So he moved to Paraguay and set up an Aryan nation. He conned various Germans to move with him. The whole thing was a disaster. There had been no planning. There was disease. Bernard Foster committed suicide when all his creditors started coming. And Elizabeth returns to Germany, only to discover that um, her brother is a superstar. And she takes over the estate and she was very eager to lend Nietzsche's fame to the cause eventually literally of the Nazis, right? Um, it, her death was marked by Hitler. This is how famous Nietzsche was. The German Kaiser at the start of World War I bought 250,000 copies of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, one of Nietzsche's famous works, and gave them to the troops. Okay. Now, if you've read Zarathustra, it was a strange choice, if you ask me, <laughs> but uh, I guess he thought it was to be inspiring. So th that gives you a sense of how important right, Nietzsche was. And everybody claimed Nietzsche by the 1920s. 
you had socialist Nietzsche's, you had anarchist Nietzsche's, you even had a kind of proto-feminist Nietzsche, you had a sort of romanticist Nietzsche, and of course the National Socialists had their version of Nietzsche. Um, once they took power, needless to say, their Nietzsche prevailed uh, in, the, in the schools and the universities. The one thing that the Nazis saw in Nietzsche, which they quite liked, was the rejection of moral egalitarianism. Right? That is, the Nazis did not believe that all human beings were of equal moral worth. Um, it was a big problem for the Nazis, however, that um, Nietzsche hated Germans. That was the first difficulty. Uh, this required some selective interpretation of his work. Um, Nietzsche hated Bismarck, not because he had moral objections, because he thought industrial capitalism and militarism debased culture, right? And if what you really care about is Goethe and Beethoven, then you don't want everyone going rah-rah, you know, for the military. Um, so there were difficulties in, in appropriating Nietzsche, but you're quite, and this now brings it back to your, your question, right? There was no question that his deeply illiberal attitude about the equality of persons was extremely appealing to the Nazis. Now you had to overlook the fact that you know, Nietzsche thought you know, the Jews were superior to the Germans and he often made fun of German anti-Semites. And, you know, so, and he hated his brother-in-law, Bernhard Foster. He didn't even go to the wedding. He was so disgusted. So his own personal attitudes are, are very complicated here. Um, but, Illiberal attitudes about the moral equality of persons are dangerous as in precisely the way of the Nazi experience suggests. I don't think uh, that Nietzsche himself viewed any of this as a kind of political program. In the 1870s, he was much more interested in sort of cultural transformation and he kind of just gave up on that, especially after his falling out with Richard Wagner, the great composer, but also, you know, a real anti-Semite, a real proto-Nazi uh, of the late 19th century. Um, after his falling out with Wagner, um, he really kind of retreated from political questions. Um, and I think he came to think of his work much more as addressed to his rightful readers. That is, he aimed to transform the consciousness of select readers, right? Those who might have fallen under the sway of Judeo-Christian morality without realizing the ways in which that morality was not in fact in their own interest, that it was a threat to their own flourishing. If you were to, if you were to give a very simplistic account of what Nietzsche thinks is the problem with morality, and I developed this in much greater detail and systematic length in my book, Nietzsche on Morality. Um, what he thinks is the problem is that um, if you're Beethoven, if you have the potential to be Beethoven and you really take Christian morality seriously, you'll never be Beethoven because you'll devote yourself to altruism, um, to concern for the suffering of others. You'll view your own suffering as an objection to your life. You'll you know, all be preoccupied with trying to uh, overcome, eliminate that suffering, um, and you'll never do anything great. That would be a very simple way of putting it. Uh, and indeed, if you know something about Beethoven's biography, in a way, he illustrates this. While he, of course, you know, paid lip service to Christianity, he was, shall we say, a very unchristian individual. <laughs> he did indeed use everyone around him kind of instrumentally for his own purposes to ensure the preconditions for continuing to, to work. So, um, so I agree on the, on the political point completely. Um, 
and uh, and I don't think Nietzsche himself is particularly sensitive to uh, to the dangers of this kind of this idea that people aren't really morally equal. On the other hand, as I've said already, Nietzsche thinks that uh, illusions are often indispensable. So for the mere fact that moral egalitarianism is false, that we can't give a good argument about, like we haven't really talked about that in detail, but we can, but that you can't give a good argument for why all people are morally equal, right? It doesn't follow for Nietzsche that we ought to give up that belief, right? The real problem with moral egalitarianism, he thinks, is its pernicious influence, right? Its pernicious impact on a culture, right? That is, it's, it's central to the whole ideology of Judeo-Christian morality on Nietzsche's view. And he thinks that ideology is, in fact, incompatible with the flourishing of the highest kinds of human excellence. So those people who have not um, read a lot of Nietzsche have probably nevertheless heard his uh, famous quotation, which is that God is dead. Um, and, and it's quite a mysterious uh, statement, right? And often taken humorously. Can you talk a bit more about what the connection is between um, Christian, um, Judeo-Christian morality um, and, and moral egalitarianism and Nietzsche's rejection of that? God is dead uh, has to be Nietzsche's best known uh, slogan. Uh, it's usually accompanied in, the, in bathrooms and universities around the world by someone writing, Nietzsche is dead, God says. <laughs> um, uh, he introduces it in a, a book called The Gay Science um, from 1881 in section 125 of that book. In this 1881 book, the person who proclaims the death of God is uh, somebody Nietzsche calls a madman who steps into the public square and announces that God is dead. And, you know, don't you see how terrible this is? Don't you see what the consequences are? But it's very important. Nietzsche makes clear that most of the people in the public square do not believe in God already. And this important to emphasize that, um, you know, by the 19th century, right, um, skepticism about Christianity, skepticism about God's existence had become very widespread within among intellectual elites. Um, and so Nietzsche can, as it were, kind of take for granted that, of course, nobody who's well-educated and well-informed would actually believe in God, right? And so this person who announces the death of God is a madman, not because he thinks God is dead. The people in the crowd look at him as a madman um, I think for a couple of related reasons. Um, first of all, because he says, we're the ones who've killed God, right? We are the murderers of murderers. Right? And secondly, um, because he thinks that the death of God is catastrophic. It's like it's unmooring the earth from the sun is one of the images he gives, okay? And the complacent atheists that the madman is talking to, they just don't see this, right? They don't see, yeah, we know God doesn't exist. What's the big deal, <laughs> right? We're, we're beyond that, we're beyond that. And you can see that in, uh, in the present day, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins is a good example. You know, God is dead, belief in God is ridiculous, you know, and, it's not a big deal. You just have to, you know, face up to it. God doesn't exist. 
Peter Singer, Derek Parfit, important moral philosophers, right? They claim to be developing a philosophical ethics that is not religious in, in character. God is dead, they're atheists, right? Uh, but it doesn't matter for the purposes of ethics and morality. This is what Nietzsche denies. This is what Nietzsche denies. He actually thinks that um, without God, without a conception of something like the Christian God, that doesn't necessarily have to be the Christian one, a lot of things are going to uh, fall apart as well, right? And that what the real problem with the significance of the death of God is we haven't yet grasped the significance of it, what it means. And Nietzsche makes clear elsewhere in the gay science and in other work, but not as much in that particular passage, but elsewhere he makes it quite clear that he thinks the death of God is going to undermine Christian morality. One of the main themes of Nietzsche's work about the, the history of our moral concepts, right, is he thinks that Christianity is just the, you know, the ultimate Jewish consequence, as he puts it. And he puts it that way for a reason, because that would, would have been very upsetting to German anti-Semites who thought we German Christians are very different from those awful Jews. And Nietzsche, this is one of the ways he likes to poke them, is <laughs> he says, no, actually, you are the ultimate Jewish consequence, and your morality is nothing but a continuation of, uh, of Judaism. So without God, Christian morality is supposed to go by the wayside. Absence of belief in God is going to be incompatible with what we've been talking about, moral egalitarianism, right? that there's some kind of connection between the idea that everyone has equal moral worth and belief in the existence of God. And one natural way to draw that connection, and in a way, Mark, your earlier comments touched on this, right, is with the simple thought that, well, we're all equally important to God, right? God has given each one of us a soul. There are different ways you can get at this, but we all count equally for God. Therefore, we're all entitled to equal moral concern. But then if you subtract God from the equation, Nietzsche thinks moral egalitarianism is in very big trouble. And it's maybe worth emphasizing that Nietzsche is actually not alone in having this worry. Um, there are a number of contemporary philosophers, uh, Jeremy Waldron, Charles Taylor, uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, who in different ways, I think all think that what I'm calling moral egalitarianism really does depend on a kind of religious basis, right? That you can't give, as it were, a purely secular defense. A secular defense of moral egalitarianism, right? And many people have written on this in the, in the philosophical literature, would try to identify some descriptive property that all human beings possess in virtue of which they all deserve equal moral consideration. Right? We're all sentient, we're all rational, right? Those are two familiar candidates in the history of moral philosophy. Um, and the problem for this as a basis for moral egalitarianism, and there are epicycles of these arguments in the academic literature now, <laughs> hundreds of pages of them, is that for any property you identify, it turns out that people possess it unequally. Some people are more rational than others. Some people are more or less sentient than others. Some people aren't rational at all, right? Someone with severe cognitive impairments, does that mean they don't count morally, right? But if people possess the descriptive property unequally, 
then it's unclear why they're all entitled to the exact same amount of moral consideration. That's the dilemma for moral egalitarianism, to specify the characteristic or the attribute that all human beings share equally in virtue of which they deserve equal moral consideration. So I want to touch on two topics. I suppose the one is to try and come up with a solution for the problem, um, which is something that you hint at in the paper, which is this notion that you could have a threshold. So whatever that particular thing is that we think grants you a moral status, um, let's say your ability to experience pain and pleasure or your ability to be rational, we might think you just need to have a sufficient amount of it. And while we'll accept that there are people who have um, excellent amounts of it, once you pass the threshold, then you get moral protection. And that means we can't uh, do certain things to you like kill you or torture you. Um, we, we might want to say that because you've crossed the threshold, um, you gain other kinds of considerations. Uh, and maybe we should be more lenient on those that are great, um, that we're more forgiving of someone like Beethoven's, let's say, uh, intolerance towards others or, uh, you know, being rude because we say, but you're, you've, you've excelled in all these other areas. And uh, so the moral rules are different for you because you pass a certain threshold. That's the one bit. The second bit is I wonder about this other implication of the death of God, which is that for a religious person, that connection between God and morality is very strong. In other words, they've at least learned their moral code through their church, their synagogue, their mosque. And what may very well happen then is for someone who becomes an atheist, they don't just lose God, they lose that system, that system of morality and that system of meaning. And that one way in which this plays out is through some kind of replacement theology. And an area where I sort of think it may be playing out is among people that describe themselves as being woke. So I would think that most people that are woke are not religious, um, but they act as if they are. So there are certain tenets of the faith. For example, there is an original sin. If you are, let's say, white or a man uh, or straight, um, that's an original sin. And it cannot be expunged, really. Um, it cannot be washed away or forgiven. Um, you need to ask for forgiveness publicly. Um, it can never really ever be given either, um, but you need to continue asking for it. And if you don't, you are a sinner. There's also a sense in which if you deny the framework, um, if you say, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a racist, um, well, that's just evidence of your racism. You know, that's your white fragility, as someone like Robin D'Angelo would say. Um, in the same way that the Christian who is trying to convert someone who says, but I don't believe in Christ or I don't believe in God, they said, but you haven't spent enough time in the faith. You know, you just need to spend more time learning the faith and then you can be an adherent. And then you have the other kinds of things that, you know, that happen in religious movements is that if you're a heretic, you must be punished. And the closer you were to the inner circle, the more you must be punished for deviating. So we've seen that, you know, a lot of people in work movements have expressed their rage and anger at people you would have thought of as allies. So other people on the left, feminists, um, other people that haven't bought whatever the latest new orthodoxy is. You know, if you said, well, I actually don't think there's, you know, a thousand angels dancing on the head of the pin, I think it's 900. Well, then we really need to beat you and make you apologize. And you know, then you can prostrate yourselves. So as I say, it seems to be that when you take God away from people, not in all cases, because I think some people go, oh, well, I'll just abide by some secular moral system. Other people are at sea and they kind of get caught up in this uh, other kind of cult. I'm going to say less about the second point, uh, though, as you know, I basically am sympathetic to, and I think you've, you've drawn the connection very nicely, that there is a dimension of religious fervor um, to the woke 
as another philosopher once called described them to me. Um, I've actually been quite struck by the fact that some of the most woke people in academic philosophy actually do come out of religious backgrounds. In some cases, they are former evangelicals who lost that faith, um, which I think is psychologically uh, very interesting. Um, you know, I think there is a lot to be said from a broadly Nietzschean psychological point of view about, uh, about these people. Um, uh, there's a section of Thus Spoke Zarathustra called On the Tarantulas, where the tarantulas are the embodiment of lust for revenge. And one of the things uh, he, Nietzsche has Zarathustra say there is that, um, you know, talk of virtue is often, as it were, a mask for, you know, a desire to be a tyrant, to exercise tyranny and control over others. And I do think that is an important part of the, the psychological story of what's going, going on here. One possible response for moral egalitarianism to the problem that people don't seem to share equally the various descriptive properties on which we might ground their entitlement to equal moral concern. And this is particularly associated with uh, John Rawls, the American political moral philosopher. Uh, he introduced this idea in his 1971 book, A Theory of Justice. And the idea was basically, as you described it, which is, um, you know, maybe it just suffices to be over a certain threshold and then differences beyond the threshold do not matter. And he calls it a range property, which is a term that comes from um, geometry. But I give a simpler example, I think an easier one to understand from the legal context, right? Um, if you have the legal status of being a citizen of South Africa or the United States or wherever, there's no such thing as being more of a citizen, right? Once you're a citizen, you have all the legal rights, responsibilities of any other citizen, right? You're over that threshold, boom, you've got it all, right? The, the, not all benefits, there are some burdens too. You gotta pay your taxes and so on. But degrees of citizenship is not, doesn't matter in this regard, right? And that's a nice example of a kind of range property. Once you're a citizen, it doesn't matter, right? There's no further differences to, to be drawn. The worry is that um, this isn't satisfactory in the moral case uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, um, where you draw the line for the threshold becomes really, really significant, right? If you're just a little below the line, then you don't get any of the benefits of moral consideration that come from being over the threshold. But why draw the line where you draw it, right? Um, that starts to look extremely capricious, right? And then you want to ask, why is drawing the line there the relevant place, such that anyone just below it gets no moral consideration, and everybody above it, regardless of their different capacities and attributes, gets the exact same amount? So there's a kind of moral arbitrariness to this. And... We know there's a moral arbitrariness about a lot of the line drawing in the law, right? Such as being a citizen or not, right? Why am I a citizen of the United States? Because I was born here. I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't, you know, it's not something, you know, that did I earn that? Did I deserve that? Did you not? Um, uh, but the law is full of line drawing that looks a little arbitrary, right? And we understand that there are various reasons why we need sometimes to draw those arbitrary lines, right? 
anyone over, you know, the age of 18 can vote. Anyone under the age of 18 can't vote. That's the rule in the United States. Completely arbitrary line. Okay, completely arbitrary line. Uh, what's the justification? Well, we got to draw it somewhere, right? We're, we don't, we lack the institutional resources to evaluate the competence of everyone to vote, to find those very clever 14-year-olds and exclude all those people who voted for Trump from casting a vote, right? Can't do it that way. Um, okay, so that's what we do in the law. But when we're talking about basic moral consideration, um, it can't be that we can just say, well, okay, it's an arbitrary line, right? Who gets moral consideration shouldn't be a morally arbitrary matter. It should depend on where you happen to set that particular threshold. So I'm not sure it's really a satisfactory response to the, to the issue. There's another response. So one of my former PhD students, who I'm, you'll probably have on the show one day as his work gets out there and becomes better known, Netna Lipschitz, uh, he wrote a wonderful dissertation on this topic. Um, the basis of equality problem. What's the base on which all human beings are morally equal? Um, he says we ought to just reject the assumption that people are morally equal in virtue of sharing some descriptive property. He thinks the only way we're going to get a normative conclusion is with some kind of normative premise, not a descriptive premise about a property we all share. And then a lot of his dissertation is given over to trying to develop that, that particular idea. Um, I'm not sure that's going to work, but I think he's probably right that um, the standard approach to the basis of equality problem um, is never going to yield a satisfactory result unless you do it the way some Kantians do, which is where you say everybody's equal in a property that they don't actually have and you can't observe and they may never realize, like a a capacity for reason in the numeral realm or something like that, right? Um, and, and that kind of solution just strikes me as, you know, giving up, right? So here's a make-believe property that everyone shares equally, even if they don't manifest it. On that basis, they're morally equal. It's not like Nietzsche runs through all these possibilities, right? But I think he sees... Uh, you know, the intuitive plausibility of the idea of the one mark, in fact, that you sketched a little earlier, which is that, look, people obviously differ in so many respects, right? Um, that it's hard to see prima facie why all those differences should matter for how they should be treated, right? For their moral treatment, moral now in the capacious sense that Jason and I were talking about um, earlier. Um, and I think Nietzsche thinks the only thing that sustains moral egalitarianism is precisely the part, as, as Mark, as you were saying, that it's part of a package, a system that's got God in a central place. You get rid of God and the whole thing is the whole house of cards is going to collapse. That was Nietzsche's view. If you were to deny moral egalitarianism, that would have enormous consequences. Um, and I'd like to just cash out those consequences for the two main moral systems. So the one is deontology or, or Kantianism, and the other one is consequentialism or utilitarianism. So it seems obviously the case that Kant requires a very strict moral egalitarianism. 
So he really needs it to be the case that everyone is equally important or equally valuable when, when we consider how we're going to treat them because he has, he has certain rules um, like, like um, the principle of, of dignity. So that every person must be treated with dignity or respect and not as a means to an end. So that really does seem to require moral egalitarianism. But now let's put Kantianism aside for a moment and just look at consequentialism. So on the consequentialist view, um, it's not as clear to me why it's such a threat to utilitarianism if moral egalitarianism were false. So in one sense, I can understand why moral egalitarianism is important because what the utilitarian does is he says an action is right just in case it maximizes um, happiness or utility, or utility for society as a whole. And he looks at each person in society and adds up the impact that your action has upon them, whether it be positive or negative, and then sums everything together. And I guess the egalitarianism is in looking at each person's uh, happiness or suffering. But... Um, it, the utilitarian does seem to have recourse to this idea that you can look at each person's um, utility as well, right? So let's say I were to wipe out five people, it does seem relevant to the utilitarian whether each of those five people is in turn producing positive or negative utility in their lives. And you might have a positive utility associated with your action of wiping out those five people if they each have negative utility, right? If they're each generating negative utility. So in one sense, I can understand why moral egalitarianism is important for the utilitarian, but in a deeper sense, it seems unimportant. And, and the, the, you know, the utilitarian seems to take that into account. So I wonder whether if we were to say, okay, we admit moral egalitarianism is false, whether that would falsify utilitarianism. So I describe this as the difference between minimal treatment moral egalitarianism and counting moral egalitarianism. Um, Kant is on the minimal treatment side. That is everybody in virtue of being a human or satisfying um, the requirements for being a human being, rational capacity, say. Um, is entitled to certain minimal treatment. And there can't be any trade-offs that involve going below the level of minimal treatment, the respect that they are entitled to. So, um, it is, of course, a distinctive, um, you know, from the standpoint of Kantian's notorious feature of utilitarianism that accountants is trade-offs. Right? Um, there is still, as you allow, there is still a strong egalitarian element to the utilitarian view you know, nicely captured by Bentham's famous slogan that everybody counts for one and not more than one, right? And uh, of course, at Bentham's time, that was a very radical idea. It was a radically egalitarian idea. The idea that, you know, the peasant's utility counted as much as the utility of a member of the House of Lords was shocking, right? Um, so in that sense, it is deeply egalitarian. And in it's egalitarian in particular in the sense that's important for my purposes here, which is that it says all human beings in virtue of being sentient, capable of experiencing pleasure and pain, count equally in the utilitarian calculation. Now it is true that when the calculation is over, right, you might end up justifying utilitarian grounds, um, sacrificing five in order to save one. Right? That is true, that that is a possible outcome for the utilitarian. And of course, you know, 
certain hardcore utilitarians, you know, bite the bullet on the trolley problem we started with. They say you absolutely should push the fat man off the bridge, <laughs> right? Because it brings about the better outcome on the assumption that saving five lives involves more utility than merely saving one. There's a large utilitarian literature devoted to showing that utilitarians still respect some minimal treatment um, requirements, okay? Um, you know, that's clear in Mill and it's clear in lots of utilitarian philosophers. Since there are some, you know, diehards who, you know, never met a bullet they didn't want to chomp down on. Um, but a lot of utilitarians are keen to say, right, that if you do the counting the right way and you think about the long-term utilities the right way, you'll end up in the same place as the minimal treatment egalitarian on, on lots of issues. Now, um, there is a kind of consequentialist structure to Nietzsche's thinking about this. And I think that's what makes it tempting to maybe assimilate him to the counting moral egalitarianism. Except, right, and this, I touched on this very briefly at the beginning, but let me uh, say a little more about it now. Except in Nietzsche's case, right, the attributes that he thinks counts are not one that all human beings share simply in virtue of being human beings, right? So that's already a massive departure, say, from the Benthamite utilitarian or the Peter Singer style utilitarian. Right? Um, well, Singer's more complicated because of his views about the disabled and the cognitively impaired, but it's a big departure from the Benthamite. Right? Bentham assumes that all people are sentient, and not just all people, of course. Lots of other creatures are sentient, too. Um, the attributes that matter for Nietzsche are not ones that Nietzsche supposes are widely shared, far from it. He thinks they are for the rare, the very few, and so on. Okay? And then related to that is that he doesn't therefore think you have to do as it were a kind of counting or calculation because some interests just don't count. They just don't count at all. This is what you know sets us on the alarming, path towards the political consequences of this, this, way, of, this way of thinking. Um, by the way, actually go back to something in Marx's example earlier. Um, you know, the, the communist, the Stalinist case is actually tricky, right? It's very, it's very different fundamentally than the Nazi case, not for the dead. The dead ended up in the same place. But it's different in that they, he really wasn't operating with the Untermenschen sense. He really was a counting moral egalitarian. And there, there, his rationale, you know, I mean, put aside that, you know, he was a paranoid sociopath, but his, uh, the thought was, you know, that the kulaks, right, needed to be sacrificed for the greater good. It was a kind of crude utilitarian calculus, dangerous, mistaken, and had lots of, you know, ghastly consequences. Um, you know, the Nazis are a little more like um, the interests of these people don't count at all, right? They really have no moral standing whatsoever. It still makes sense to treat the counting moral egalitarians, the utilitarians, as in the moral egalitarian camp, because they agree with the Kantians that all human beings, indeed, some of the counting moral egalitarians may be better than Kant on this score, right? That all human beings, right? have certain properties in virtue of which their interests count and they have to be counted. That's the crucial thing. They have to be counted before you can decide what it is you ought to do. If you have the moral egalitarian on the one hand, who says that all human beings are intrinsically valuable if we cash that out. And you have 
the kind of Nietzschean view, which says, no, some people are worthless garbage and other people are, you know, um, Uber mentioned who needs to be venerated. Is there a way to rationally resolve the disagreement? Or are the two camps so far apart that at that juncture, the conversation ends? The latter. Uh, I mean, that's my view. And I think this is actually Nietzsche's view. Nietzsche thinks that in when it comes to a fundamental sort of normative disagreement, should we look out for and protect the interests of the herd, the vast majority at the expense of geniuses, right? which Nietzsche thinks is what we'll do if he's right that Christian morality is incompatible with the realizations of certain kind of genius, right? Um, you could agree with Nietzsche that that's true even and think, okay, too bad. The well-being of the majority is what counts. And Nietzsche disagrees with that. Um, and I don't think that Nietzsche thinks that there is actually any um, means of rational resolution of that dispute, that that is a deep and fundamental disagreement in basic evaluative perspectives. Yeah? And I'm actually inclined to agree with that. Um, I think one of the nice things about thinking about Nietzsche in this regard is it makes clear that an awful lot of so-called moral disagreements probably aren't really moral disagreements. They are disagreements that are motivated by certain background assumptions that people are making because they aren't as radical as this disagreement that Nietzsche has with modernity when it comes to moral egalitarianism. Um, you know, when people point to things, oh, you know, people disagree about abortion. Do they really have a moral disagreement about abortion or do they bring to the discussion certain assumptions that are driving the apparent disagreement, right? You know, it's, uh, I think it's almost always the latter, right? That one side thinks, you know, that both sides in fact agree that there is such a thing as a right to life, right? And then they have a kind of disagreement about what are the conditions under which it attaches, okay? Um, that's a different kind of disagreement than a fundamental evaluative disagreement like the kind in, in the scenario you're imagining. You know, a funny thing about Nietzsche is he is the philosopher who's always disinviting people from reading him, saying, you know, this book may not really be for you or it won't make sense, you know, if your ears are not related to our ears, as he puts it in the right kind of way. Um, I do think he thinks that a lot of what he has to say uh, is gonna sound like a crime to certain readers. That's another thing he says. Um, and I think he's probably right about that. I think he's probably right about that. Um, this is a contested issue in the interpretation of Nietzsche, but it is reflected in one very well-known interpretation of Nietzsche that you get in Alistair McIntyre's well-known book, After Virtue. And I disagree with a lot of things in McIntyre, but I think he actually gets Nietzsche exactly right on this score. Right? that there is no way to resolve these fundamental moral disputes. McIntyre draws the conclusion from that, that we need a certain kind of moral community and tradition in order to have rational discussions of, of moral questions. And it may be true that that will suffice, but that's obviously not a solution that Nietzsche is interested in finding. One of the things that's hard to grapple with with regards to Nietzsche is that coming from a continental tradition, you know, often the style of writing is so different from what analytics are used to. And I think you've elucidated his ideas in such a clear and compelling manner. And, you know, there's huge virtue in that. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And, uh, you know, I think there's very few things analytic philosophers can say they can do, but one of them is try to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's less and less a virtue, sadly, in analytic philosophy, but 
it is always a virtue on this show. So that's <laughs> that's one thing we can bring to the table is clarity and uh, avoiding unnecessary obscurity about things.